God, I thank you for your incomparable greatness and glory. I thank you for the great privilege of being able to be uh, worshiping you and praising you, proclaiming that you are great. I thank you for the great privilege of being able to do that with your people, to be named your people. I pray that you would use your word this morning, use the Bible to shape us to learn our role faithfully so that we live in obedience to you together every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus and asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At my church uh, growing up, we had this uh, song that we would sometimes sing together. It was an old song. It says, uh, they will know we are Christians by our love, uh, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And some of you, if you grew up in church, uh, maybe you uh, remember that song, um, if you're old enough, uh, like me, apparently. Um, but uh, it's not always the case, is it? It's not always true that Christians are known by their love. Uh, a pastor friend of mine had much the opposite experience in, in a new church that he was pastoring. Just within the last couple of years, he had been new to the church, and, and this lady of influence who had been there for years uh, was used to getting her own way. And he was coming in with more of a team approach, and, and she didn't like the fact that her voice was one among many, and that he was working toward um, a, a community, kind of team-building sort of a thing. And she, when she discovered that she could no longer run the show and wasn't at the helm anymore, her true colors began to show, and she started working behind the scenes to get this pastor removed so that she could kind of have her role back as church boss. And so she had little kind of secret meetings with different people here and there and try to kind of create some division and create some discord within the church. And when that didn't work either, she became more aggressive. She made a serious accusation against the character of this pastor to the elder board. And of course, the elders took it seriously and they investigated. What they found out, though, was that she was lying. There was no basis to her accusation at all. It simply was not true. And so when they went to this woman and uh, confronted her about this false accusation, rather than confessing and repenting, she was infuriated. She was so mad that they wouldn't just take her at her word and that they actually investigated to see if it was actually true. She was so mad, even though she was caught in a lie, she was so mad that they would even just not take her at her word and take immediate action in firing this pastor. And, it, and rather than changing her course even then, rather than repenting, she continued to get more and more hostile. This pastor started getting uh, voicemails from her on his uh, answering machine, and he described them as, at best, a death wish. But really, they were more of a death threat against him. This is a guy with, with young kids and with, with a wife at home. And he found out later that from others in the church, they said, this woman is in it to, to win. And for her, winning isn't just you leave the church. For her, winning means that you are going to be totally destroyed. You will never pastor another church in your entire life. That is how she plays. She plays to win. She plays for keeps. That's the kind of person that she is. Now, fortunately, in this church, they, they did the best they could to deal with this conflict and deal with this sin issue, and the lady ended up being removed from the church because she continued to be unrepentant uh, in this sin. And by God's grace, that church has dealt with that and worked through it and has, has actually come out more healthy on the other end of it. But this is the kind of thing that sometimes happens in church, and maybe you are familiar with stories that would make this one look mild by comparison. Relationships break down, people get upset, sides are formed, and you've got unhealthy conflict within the church. And that has happened here as well. Trinity has a bit of a rough 
history. We've had some periods of intense conflict and had a lot of people leave the church as a result of that, including one really messy church split back in the 90s that really tore the church apart. And some of you were here through that. Some of you felt the pain of, of being torn apart from your brothers and sisters in Christ. This was a devastating thing for the church. I have a great appreciation and admiration for those who, who stuck with it through all of that and helped the church to heal and rebuild all, after all of that. But as hard as this is internally with, within the relationships that the Christians have within the church, its destructive force goes beyond as well. It hurts the witness of the church in the community. Word about this kind of thing gets out. So my wife and I, in our first summer here, had separate experiences where someone found out that we were new to the community and, and we'd moved here uh, so that I could be the pastor at Trinity, they, they essentially offered their condolences to us. Like, oh, I'm sorry that you're here for that. Like, there was this, this mindset that we were going to get chewed up and spit out and that our time in Ludington would be pretty short. Now, if that's true, if that's the reputation that the church has, then how are people who are not yet followers of Jesus going to respond? They're going to say, why would I want any part of that? Now, much to our relief, and appreciation. That hasn't been our experience at Trinity at all. We found here people who have been tremendously encouraging and generous and loving and caring toward us in countless ways, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. We found people here who love Christ and who want to be part of a strong, vibrant community that's, that's growing together and it's reaching out to the community as well. And by God's grace, I believe that our reputation in the larger community has changed significantly as well. We're far from perfect, and we'll always be imperfect. We'll be the first ones to admit that. And there will always be elements of conflict here, but, but we are committed to working through conflict in a healthy way to be able to grow together through that. Jesus calls his church to mission. He calls us to make disciples. He calls us to be his witnesses, telling others about him right where we are and throughout the entire world. So how do we do that? The church plays a vital role in this mission, and that's what we're looking at in this series called One Mission Together. Last week, we saw how God calls us to grow up in our faith, to mature and become more like Jesus, not to just be little spiritual babies forever. And we saw how he uses Christian community to grow us up toward maturity. Today, we're looking at how Jesus calls his church, his followers, to mission, and how the community is a vital part of that mission. So the text we're looking at today is John chapter 17, uh, and we'll look at verses 13 through 23. Go ahead and turn there in your Bibles if you haven't already done that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack. You can even take it home if you want. John 17 is found on page 1071 of the pew Bibles. So John 17, we'll look at verses 13 through 23, page 1071 of the pew Bibles. Now this is John, all of John 17, the whole chapter, is a prayer that Jesus offers for his disciples. I don't know if you know this, but, but Jesus prayed for us. He prayed for you and I, and this is the record of that prayer. And we're gonna, as we look at a section of this prayer, we're going to see that Jesus prayed uh, two things for the church, two things that the church on mission needs. And the first thing that the church on mission needs is God's protection. So that's what Jesus prays over us. Now we're picking up in the middle of the prayer here. It's worth your time to go back and read all of John 17 to get a picture of this prayer. This is Jesus toward the end of his life on earth. He's going to get uh, arrested in John 18, the next uh, chapter of the book of John, and he will be crucified again. So this is toward the end of his life. He's praying to God that, that God would protect his followers in the midst of that. So this is God, uh, Jesus speaking to God the Father, beginning in verse 13 of John 17. He says this, 
I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now notice what Jesus is praying here specifically. In verse 15, he says, I'm not praying that God would remove his disciples from the world. He's praying that God will protect them in the midst of that. Now this despite the fact that in verse 14, he's indicating that the world is going to hate his followers. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people hate me, and and I tend to not want to spend time with people if I know that they hate me. So I might have rather Jesus pray to God to actually remove me from people that might hate me so that I don't don't have to experience that. And indeed, the Bible records instances of, of godly men who've been called by God, asking God to take them out of a hostile situation, out of a hostile world. Uh, Abraham, excuse me, Moses did this, Elijah did this, Jonah did this, and yet God didn't take any of them out of the world. Later on, he did for Elijah, but not when he asked for it at that moment. And the reason that he didn't take them out of the world was that he had a specific job for each one of these men. And the same is true for Jesus' followers. The reason that Jesus asks God to protect them instead of taking them out of the world is because he's commissioning them for needed work. In verse 18, he says here that as God has sent him into the world, he is now sending his followers into the world. So he's giving them a mission, and that mission is more important than their comfort or even their personal safety. So even if it means that they're going to face a world that might hate them, even if it means that they will face hostility and potential attacks, followers of Jesus continue to engage his mission because the mission is too important. It simply must be done. And for some reason, this this makes me think of the American troops storming the beaches of Normandy during World War II on D-Day. Those of you who know the history of this know how big of a deal uh, this invasion was, that the Allied forces sent some 160,000 soldiers to gain a foothold in the German-held mainland of Europe. And they did this knowing that, that Hitler had made preparations against such an invasion. He had fortified the whole Atlantic Wall and worked hard to make sure that the Allies couldn't get in there and gain a foothold. And, and they had done all this work to make sure that tanks couldn't come and, and land on the beaches. They put all this anti-tank uh, obstacles and, and landmines and all sorts of other stuff. They filled the beaches with barbed wire and, and traps for infantrymen to guard the whole coastline. All these preparations meant that any invasion would be highly dangerous. Now, if they knew that, why would they ever want to engage in that mission? Who would ever want to be part of that dangerous of a mission? The easy thing for them would have been to kind of stay home and just sort of wait things out. There was a huge cost and a huge risk. But the mission was way too important to simply wait it out. This was the chance to begin the liberation of continental Europe. So the soldiers knew the risks, but they chose to go anyway, and they chose to go because the mission was more important than their own feelings of security and safety, their own comfort. How much more the mission of the church in the world? 
I mean, this is about matters of eternity. We get to be part of God's mission of reclaiming the world for good. We get to be part of him making all things new. We get to proclaim the good news that in Jesus, God is making all things new and setting all things right. And this mission isn't a mission of drudgery. Don't miss what Jesus is praying there in verse 13. He's praying, so I, he says, I am saying these things so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. This isn't drudgery. This is something that fills us with great joy to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus to a world that is desperately in need of good news. That's the mission of the church. And if followers of Jesus are going to engage in this mission and face hostility, they need God to be active among them. And that's why Jesus prays that God would protect them from the evil one. The evil one in this context refers to Satan, the one who is opposed to all the good that God is doing in the world. Satan is the one who accuses God's people. Satan is the one who works to destroy. And so the church needs God's protection in order to not only survive, but also to be effective at this mission. Jesus also prays that God would sanctify his followers. This is what he says in verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctify is a word that's connected to holiness, so he's asking God to make his followers holy. But it's holy not just in the sense of kind of righteousness and moral perfection, but it's also holiness in the sense of being set apart for a particular purpose. That's why in verse 18, Jesus is connecting this to him sending his followers, and it's what he means in verse 19 when he says that he has sanctified himself. He has set himself apart and dedicated himself to the mission that God has given him for God's purposes. So we see that the church is sent by Jesus and this into this potentially hostile world with the mission of sharing the great news of God's love for them. And if the church is going to effectively engage that mission, we need God's protection. We need God to set us apart for his purposes. So the first thing that the church on mission needs is God's protection. And that's what Jesus prays for us. But Jesus' prayer continues, and we see that the second thing the church on mission needs is God's unity. Listen to how he continues this prayer, starting in verse 20. He says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. So in the earlier section that we looked at, Jesus was specifically praying for his disciples there in the first century that were right there with him. We were kind of future followers were in view implicitly, but the, the focus of that was on the disciples who were right there with Jesus. Now he's turning his attention specifically to you and I, to people who will believe in the message of Jesus through the work of the church through the ages. So even as Jesus is praying this, he knows that this mission that he's sending his followers on is going to be effective. More people will actually come to trust in him through the work of these first disciples. And so Jesus prays for us specifically here. And what Jesus prays for us is that we will be one. He says it three times in these few short verses. In verse 21, he says, he prays that, that all of them may be one. Again in verse 22. 
that they may be one as we are one. And again, in verse 23, that they may be brought to complete unity. So this is clearly an important concern that Jesus has for his future followers. He's repeating it three times to emphasize just how important it is that future followers of Jesus will be one, be connected together. And and this oneness that Jesus is praying over us, it really finds its foundation and its basis in the unity that Jesus has with God the Father. Did you see that in verse 21? May they be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So it is this unity that Jesus the Son has with God the Father that really shows us. It's the model for what unity of believers really comes from. And we see that this isn't something that we kind of manufacture on our own. It comes from us first and foremost being connected to God individually. So we see at the end of verse 21, may they be in us. And again in verse 23, I in them and you in me. So it isn't that we kind of manufacture this unity or this oneness by kind of searching for the the lowest common denominator of things that we might share in common. It's that first and foremost, each of us should be connected to God himself, to be in him and to have Jesus in us. And when that's true, then we find that we have meaningful oneness together. Because if if I am connected to God, if I am in him, and if he is in me, and if you are in God, connected to him, and if he is in you as well, we find that that's where we we are one together as well. That's what meaningful, meaningful experience of unity really comes from. And don't miss the intended outcome of this. The intended outcome is that people who are from the outside who are watching will see the truth of the message by how we live together, by this oneness. So he says at the end of verse 21, he's praying that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, and here's the reason, or the outcome, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Same thing in verse 23. So they may be brought to complete unity and the outcome. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, this is what is at stake in the church being one. Jesus calls his church to mission, to go and to tell more people the great news of God's love. And if the church is going to engage that mission effectively, we have to be unified. We have to be one. Those who don't yet know Jesus get to look at the church and to look at how we treat one another and make a judgment on whether or not the gospel of Jesus is true. That is a difficult thing, right? It's terrifying to some degree. That's what breaks my heart so much to see conflict and fighting in the church and and relational discord, people dealing with conflict in, in unhealthy ways. Not only is it hurting the community of faith, not only is it destroying one another who should be brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's also destroying the reputation of Christ in the community. People who don't yet believe that this message is true are going to have another reason to believe that it's not true. Because look, it doesn't actually make a difference in the real world. If that's how Christians treat one another, I don't want any part of that. But as much as there's, there's a negative side of this, there's also a huge positive opportunity. If we live together well, we're showing the world the truth of the gospel. We're showing that the message of Jesus actually changes lives. It's the work of God in us and shaping us as a community that loves one another, that testifies again to the truth that God has sent Jesus 
to remake the world and to make all things new. So we get to show that the message of Jesus is true by the work of God among us to draw us toward one another. That's what I loved about the prospect of coming to a church of, with 130 years of history and 130 years of baggage. I love the idea of coming to a church with maybe a little bit of a rough reputation in town and being part of God's work and, and turning that around by, by bringing Him glory by how we live in authentic relationship and community with one another as we learn to deeply care for one another and, and, and serve one another and love one another. It's a testimony to the work of God in our lives. I mean, this is, this is what we've been working so hard over the last years to build because it's a demonstration of God's power to change lives through the message of Jesus. And you as a church have been so encouraging to me of this. I've seen this time after time of this church family serving and loving one another. I've shared before a story that sticks in my mind as a great example of the missional impact that us living together and being one with one another makes. One of our church families a few years ago was moving into a new home, or at least it was new to them. It was an old home and it had a lot of work to be done, and they were kind of racing the clock, working hard to get it put together so that they could move in. They had sold their previous house and they were kind of homeless to some degree. And so they were working hard to get it and they were discouraged by how long it was taking. So one Friday, a group of people from church went over and got to work. Got dirty, cleaning, fixing things, getting it ready for them to move into. It's a great picture of Christian community. Like, this is what we do when we love each other. This is what we do when we are one. But here's my favorite part. There was a contractor who was uh, finishing up his work. He'd been working all day Friday, and he was kind of packing up for the weekend and getting ready to go. And as he was getting his stuff ready, this line of guys starts filing in ready to work and he looked at the homeowner and he, and he said why are these guys here i mean do you have some kind of like blackmail that you're going to use against them are you holding something over their head and if they don't come you're going to kind of let it out and why are these guys here it was just the idea that people would would give up time on, on a weekend evening and and they would get dirty to help someone else when when there was nothing in it for them that was a foreign concept to him he hadn't experienced this. And so for this man, it was an opportunity for him to see the truth of the gospel by how God's people came together to serve one another. And that's just one example. I've seen this time after time. I've, I've seen some of you sit alongside uh, someone in our church family as they sat by the bedside of a dying family member. And you were there with them through the whole time. You sat with them. You served them. You brought them food. You brought them meals. You made sure that they knew that they were cared for and loved. That's what church family does. That's what being one is about. And not only is that good for the community of faith, but think about the people who saw that. Think about the nurses and the nursing staff, um, the nursing home staff who saw that in action. It gives them another opportunity to see this is what Christian community likes. It looks like. Maybe this message of Jesus really is impactful. Maybe there is really something here. Now, I'll be the first to say we are not perfect at this. We have let people down time after time after time. I have let people down time after time after time. We've, we've missed people. People have fallen through the cracks. We've failed to care for each other well. But we are in this together, and we're committed to continuing to work hard at this and to grow at this together. So as we continue to work hard to reach out into our community, to introduce people to a life-changing relationship with God, and to, to proclaim the name of Jesus out beyond our walls as well, at the same time, we, the community of faith is a huge means of doing this. Now, maybe you have not experienced community like this, the kind of community that Jesus prays for, that they would be one, that they would serve one another. 
And maybe you've been at Trinity for months now. Maybe you've been at Trinity for years now. And you feel like no one has ever made an effort to really know you. You feel like you're just here. You're not really part of of this church family. You don't really feel like you're one with this community of believers. There are many lonely people in the church. There are many lonely people in this church. The question is, how are we going to continue to strengthen community? How are we going to work at that to change that so that we really do become one as Jesus is praying for us to be one? How are we going to do that? There's not an easy answer that's going to fix everything and just magically make everything perfect and and create community like that. But we're working hard. What it takes is, is all of us as a church having a commitment to do this together. It takes every one of us making an effort to see that person who maybe is on the outskirts, maybe who's looking lonely or feeling lonely, and just introducing yourself to them, finding out who they are, finding out what their uh, burdens are, what their joys are, getting to know others, simply walking across the room sometime. I was talking to someone from the worship team, and they were using the time between the services, and they said, you know what, I was really challenged to go do this between services, and he did it. They said it wasn't very comfortable, it wasn't very easy, but, but it was great, and he did it, and his wife did it, and it was, that's what we're talking about. It's sometimes doing the uncomfortable thing because we have this commitment to realize that we are in this together. And each one of us needs to take initiative and each one of us needs to take responsibility and to risk relationship to be able to do that. These life groups that we're talking about are just one way that we're working at that, but they are also a very important way for us to do that. It's great when community happens organically and naturally. I love seeing that. But we don't want anyone to miss out. We don't want anyone to feel like they are left out. So we're working hard to grow places where the kind of community that Jesus is talking about can happen. Groups are a great place for that, for us to learn to become one, to love one another, to care for one another, to become more connected with God so that we become more connected with one another as well. And this is actually possible, the kind of community that Jesus is talking about being one in such a way that it makes an impact on the mission of the church so that others want to be part of that. This is actually possible. Most of us are very busy people. We don't have time for just another thing. But we need each other. We need each other to be this loving community. And our community needs to see what a gospel-shaped community really looks like. What it looks like when the message of Jesus is getting so down deep into our hearts that we are increasingly loving one another. We are increasingly serving one another and caring for one another and working through hard things together, sharing in joy, sharing in sorrows, and growing to be one like Jesus has prayed for us to be one. Life groups that we are starting are are a great place to start that. They're a great place to engage the mission that Jesus has given us. They not only provide a place for you to grow to know others and, and to grow Christian community, but they also provide an opportunity to reach out to others in community. So think about your one. If you're new to our church or you're not sure what one is, our ones are the people that, that God has put on our hearts who right now are not yet followers of Jesus, but that we are praying for intentionally, that God has put in our heart to reach out with the message of Jesus. This is what we refer to as our one. We have little cards, we put a name on them, and we pray for them continually. And that might sound like our ones are kind of our project. We're going to kind of check them off and, and kind of do our good deed. That's not what this is about at all. Our ones are people that we deeply care about. Our friends, our neighbors, our classmates, someone that, that God has really given us a love for and that we would love to see uh, experience Jesus for the first time. 
And we're praying toward that and we're working toward that end. But think about your one. Maybe your one is not yet at a point where they would be comfortable just coming to a more Bible study kind of focused life group. But maybe they do want to make some choices to, to have a healthier life and to feel better. Maybe you do something like the Daniel plan with Scott. Maybe you invite him to come to that and you join him in that. And it's an opportunity for them to start to open up the Bible a little bit, to start to see what that's about, to start to see what Christian community looks like. They'd be able to open up the door for them to experience that. Or maybe your one is so hungry for relationships, like Sue Davidson shared last week, so hungry for relationships, she'd come to anything. She'll, even if it's an intense Bible study, even if it sounds terrible, she's going to come because she's so hungry for those relationships. And God can use that too as an entry toward uh, coming to understand who Jesus is and coming to experience Christian community. Or maybe your one needs a smaller gathering like Mike shared about last week with these three-person discipleship groups. Maybe they need a place where they can come and ask hard questions, where they can open up about the really hard things in their lives and be able to share those with others to get answers for some of those questions and to be able to walk alongside others in close community. Listen, if we are ever going to get past the stereotypes and, sadly, the reality of church fights and relational discord within the church, we have to work at it. Rather than fighting one another, we have to fight for one another. We have to fight for community. We have to fight for oneness. We have to work hard at this. We have to be willing to risk being real and authentic with one another about where we truly are because that's where true relationships are really built. We have to work hard to assume the best of one another and not to assume bad motives. This is hard work, but it is so essential. The kind of of beautiful, deep, loving community that Jesus is talking about is possible. It's possible for the church to be one as God the Father and Jesus the Son are one. That's what Jesus is praying for us. It's possible for us to be so unified that those who are outside of the community of faith see that and can see, yes, there must be something to this message of Jesus. Because if people like that can learn to love each other like that, there is a power there that I need to understand. The mission that Jesus has given the church is not easy, but there is great joy in getting to engage that mission together as a church family. We get to love and serve one another And we get to love and serve others together. And through all of our imperfections and failures, we get to live a life together that shows by how we are one that the message of Jesus is true and it changes lives, lives like yours and mine and our life together. Please join me in prayer. God, would you be gracious enough to us as your people, that you would make us one as Jesus prayed for us. I I pray that you would protect us from the evil one, that you would protect us from his attempts to accuse us and to destroy us and to divide us. And I pray that you would answer Jesus' prayer for us, that you would protect us, that you would set us apart for your purposes, and that you would make us one so that the whole world would come to one day know that you alone are God and that you have sent your Son with the best news ever, that we can be your children because of his work. May our life together point beyond us to you for your glory alone. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.